Well, please take a seat and please have Ecclesiastes chapter 4 open in front of you as well as we come to this great chapter. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your spirit whom you've given to us and who helps us to understand your word and to apply your word and to live in obedience to what your word has to say. And so we ask now for the Spirit's help for both the preacher and the hearer, and that the Spirit would take this word and apply it to each heart and do so for your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder, if I was to ask you, what are your ambitions in life? How would you answer that question? What do you want to achieve in life? What would you like to accomplish? What would you like to be known for? What are your hopes and your dreams for the future? Where would you like to be five or ten years from now? Just think about that for a moment. How would you answer those questions? What are your ambitions in life? Well, today in our series in the book of Ecclesiastes, we come to this chapter, chapter 4, and it is a chapter all about ambition. Now, the word ambition doesn't actually appear in the chapter itself, and yet as we delve into this chapter, we'll see that ambition is what the teacher is exploring in this part of his book. He wants us to think about uh, the topic of human ambition in general and, of course, about our own ambitions in particular. And, of course, there is nothing wrong with ambition. And, in fact, some ambitions are very good. Uh, we should be people with ambition. But what the teacher is showing us here is that in the hands of fallen men and women like us, so often our ambitions become skewed by sin, they cause suffering, and they end in futility. That is the overall outlook of this chapter, if you want it in a nutshell. Fallen ambition is skewed by sin, causes suffering, and ends in futility. And the way that the teacher is going to convince us of this is by showing us four different examples of fallen, that is sinful, ambition. I'll tell you what they are now before we get to them. They are the fallen ambition for power, possessions, prosperity, and prominence. Power, possessions, prosperity, and prominence. And so let's explore these one by one to start with the ambition for power. And as the teacher looks at life under the sun, that is life here on earth in this fallen creation, he sees that it is a world in which so many people are hungry for power. That is, they want to be the one in charge. 
They want to be in control. They want to be influential. They want to be powerful in the world. And how do they try and get into that position of power and then keep that power once they've attained it? And the answer is that so often people do that through oppressing the weak. And so clearly their fallen ambition for power causes a great deal of suffering for others. And that's what the teacher wants us to see, isn't it? As he looks at the world and as he shares his observations with us. He says, again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And such is the scale of the suffering that is caused by those whose ambition is power. That the teacher thinks to himself, those who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. He's saying those who are dead have escaped from these oppressors. And then he goes even further and he says, but better than both, that is better than both the living and the dead, is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Do you see the teacher is telling us this fallen ambition for power is what causes a huge amount of suffering in the world in which we live. And sadly, we can look around us at the world we live in today and we can see that things have not really changed in these 3,000 years that have elapsed since the teacher wrote these words. We still live in a world where mankind is often characterized by this fallen ambition for power. Power which is often attained and then maintained by oppressing those who are weaker. And so think of the misery of those who live under dictatorships. Think of the oppression of those who are trapped in slave labor. Think of the modern day scandal of human trafficking. Think of all the suffering that is caused in the world by this fallen ambition for power. But the teacher is only getting started. And he's got three more examples of fallen ambition that he wants to show us. And up next is the ambition for possessions. The ambition for possessions. And the next thing the teacher sees as he looks at the world is the way in which so many people are so driven in their work. They get up early to go to work. They stay late at work. They work hard all through the day. As well as that, they get all the training they can in order to hone their skills, in order to be more effective, more productive in their work. And of course, there is nothing that is inherently wrong with being hardworking, uh, using your skills, getting trained, working hard at a career. These are, of course, good things in themselves. But what is wrong, says the teacher, is what so often motivates people to live lives like that. 
And he exposes that underlying motivation in verse 4. He says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. So a man looks over his garden fence at his neighbor's house and he sees that his neighbor has built an extension out the back. And so now he wants one as well. And his neighbor has just bought a new car and so now he wants one too. And then he goes on Facebook or whatever and he sees that his neighbor has just come back from an amazing three-week holiday in the Maldives. And he's filled with envy of his neighbor. He wants all of these things that his neighbor has. He wants these possessions for himself. And so he makes those possessions his ambition. And how can he fulfill that envious ambition for all of these wonderful possessions? Well, he decides that what he will do is that he will throw himself into his career. And he's going to see if he can secure another promotion, get a pay rise. As well as that, he enrolls in a night course as well. And he, he seeks to gain more skills, to get more training which will make him more appealing to prospective employers. And maybe, just maybe, he'll be headhunted by a bigger company that pays better. And just maybe then he will fulfill that envious ambition for these possessions. He'll build a bigger house for himself. He'll buy himself a better car. He'll have smarter clothes to wear. He'll go on better holidays and such like. And the teacher shakes his head in the second half of verse 4. And he says, this also is vanity and a striving after wind. In other words, this is not what will make him happy. He will never be satisfied by simply having more possessions. He'll never feel like he's got enough. And there's always going to be someone somewhere who has more than him. And you see, this fallen ambition for possessions is futile. It is a striving after the wind. So what is the answer to it then? Well, verse 5 tells us what is not the answer. And the answer is not laziness. The answer is not just giving up your job and just laying around all day doing nothing. No, the teacher says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Now, of course, that verse isn't meant to be taken literally. It's a proverb, isn't it? What it means simply is that the lazy person, the one who does no work, the one who just folds his hands, is a self-destructive person. In a sense, they end up harming themselves. They diminish their own lives. It's like they're eating their own flesh by being lazy. So the right answer is not laziness. No, the right answer to this fallen ambition for possessions is this quiet, godly contentment. Quiet, godly contentment. That's what verse 6 is telling us, isn't it? Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. 
Simply the teacher is saying it is better to have fewer possessions and yet to have a life of quiet, godly contentment than to race around with this fallen ambition for possessions driven by envy. Possessions that you may well gain and yet have a life that is filled with toil and a striving after the wind. Better is a life of quiet, godly contentment. Paul says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, but we urge you brothers to do this more and more and to aspire, or some translations have, to make it your ambition to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And in a similar way, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's worth asking ourselves, isn't it, which kind of ambition am I pursuing in life? Am I slogging my guts out at work just so that I can have more possessions? Always striving for the next best thing. Always striving for what other people have. Or am I living a life of quiet, godly contentment? Content with what I have, even though others have far more possessions than I do. And then the the third fallen ambition that the teacher shows us is somewhat similar and that is the ambition for prosperity and in verses 7 and 8 the teacher describes to us the life of the lonesome workaholic the lonesome workaholic and this person is lonesome not because of the circumstances of his life no he's lonesome because he has chosen to be rather than making friends rather than having a family he has decided to give his life to work instead, much like we saw back in verse 4, a similar kind of life, that life of throwing oneself into one's work. And this man's main ambition in life is to make a fortune. And because that is his ambition, he has no time for friendship, no time for family. Time is money for this man. And so he works and works and works with all his time and all his energy to make more money. And again, the teacher shakes his head at this fallen ambition. And he says it is all futile. It's all vanity. And in fact, he shows us four different ways in which this is so futile. Note these four different ways. Firstly, there's no end to his toil. There's always more work for this man to do. There's always another deadline to meet. There's always another email to send. There's always another client to arrange a meeting with. There's always another sale to close. And so his work is like a treadmill that will never stop. 
And then secondly, his riches will never satisfy him. His ambition is prosperity, but it will never fulfill him. He's never going to feel that he's got enough. When the American businessman John D. Rockefeller was once asked, how much money is enough money? He gave the tongue-in-cheek reply, just a little bit more. And you see, the teacher would actually agree with that. If you're looking for contentment, satisfaction in money, you will never feel that you have enough to satisfy you. You will always want that little bit more. And then the third way in which this fallen ambition for prosperity is futile is because this man has got no one to enjoy it with anyway. The teacher says that this man never asks, for whom am I toiling? He never asks that question because the answer is no one. He's made prosperity his ambition, and the cost of that has been relationships with others in life. And then fourthly, the futility is that he can't even enjoy this prosperity himself either. So he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? You see, not only does he have no one to enjoy his prosperity with, actually he can't even enjoy it himself either. Because he's always working. There's no end to his toil. The fallen ambition for prosperity is utterly futile in these four different ways. No end to toil. No satisfaction in riches. No one to enjoy them with. And no chance to enjoy them yourself. What is the answer then? Well, the answer to this is given in verses 9 to 12. And the answer, put simply, is a life of fellowship. That is the teacher's remedy to the fallen ambition for prosperity. That, prosper, that ambition for prosperity that will make you into a lonesome workaholic. And instead of living a life seeking your own prosperity, live a life of fellowship instead. That's what the teacher says, isn't it? And in verses 9 to 12, he gives us this beautiful little portrait of a life lived in fellowship with others. People working together. So that they can get more done and have greater rewards to share with one another. People helping one another. People caring for one another. People protecting one another. People being stronger together with one another. Now some people think that the teacher is speaking specifically about marriage here. I don't think that is the case actually. It certainly includes the, the marriage relationship and the fellowship that that brings. But I think that the teacher is speaking more broadly here about simply life lived in fellowship with other people. People working alongside one another, serving together, helping one another, caring for one another. And the answer the teacher gives to the fallen ambition for prosperity is to live in fellowship with other people. Which is of course what God has always intended for us and which he gives to us when he brings us into the church family. An opportunity to live in fellowship with those around you. And if the Lord blesses you with prosperity, he's giving you the opportunity to live in fellowship in that particular way with others. To share with those who are in need. And then fourthly and finally, let's see what the teacher has to tell us about the fallen ambition for prominence. And in verses 13 to 16, he tells us this story, doesn't he, of, of an old king. This person who'd actually been born poor. He wasn't born a king. 
And to start with, at least, life had not gone very well for him. Verse 14 tells us that he ended up in prison even for a while. And yet somehow in the end, he became the king. And he had a wonderful kingdom that he ruled over. Verse 16 says that there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. So he was a very powerful king, reigning over many, many people. And it's the ultimate rags to riches story, isn't it? Born poor, growing up in poverty, later on even being sent to prison, but in the end, becoming the king, ruling over this kingdom. He went from utter obscurity to remarkable prominence. It is the stuff of Hollywood films, isn't it? This is the dream, the ambition for so many people, isn't it? To rise up out of the ordinary, humdrum, run-of-the-mill sort of lives that we live. And really to make it, to end up being a prominent person, to make a name for ourselves, being looked up to by others, being well regarded, to make it to the top of our chosen field, whatever that may be. And yet, as with all the other examples of fallen ambition, once again, the teacher wants to point out that this ambition for prominence is marked with sin and futility. And again, there are four ways in which that is described to us through the life and the story of this old king. Notice them just very quickly. Firstly, his reign was foolish. So we're told he wasn't just a king, he was a foolish king. And so notice that prominence can live happily side by side with foolishness. That's the first thing. Secondly, his reign was proud. So the teacher says that this king, now that he'd made it, now that he'd got to the throne, he no longer knew how to take advice. And so prominence can go to your head. Prominence can make you proud, even in your old age. And then thirdly, his reign was short. Verse 15, did you notice, just in passing almost, mentions a youth who is going to stand in this king's place. So this king's reign is going to be temporary. It's going to be for a short while. And then, of course, his throne will go to his successor, this young king who's going to take the place of the old king. And so prominence is temporary. That's the point, isn't it? Prominence is temporary. And fourthly, his reign was inglorious as well. So the end of verse 16, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. So just because he was prominent doesn't mean that people liked him. Now after he's gone, people will not miss him. They will not rejoice in him. And you see how futile the ambition for prominence is. And the teacher is showing us that even with great prominence in the world, in fact, even if we were a king or a queen, we could still be foolish, proud, gone quickly, and not missed. And well can the teacher say, surely this also, this fallen ambition for prominence, is vanity and a striving after wind. And so what is the answer to this fallen ambition for prominence? Well, the answer that the teacher gives us in verse 13 is that we should value wisdom above prominence. 
Value wisdom above prominence. That's what he's saying, isn't it, in verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Do you see, it's better to be wise but lack prominence than to be prominent and lack wisdom. And easily we can take that principle and apply it to ourselves and our own lives and our own careers, whatever your career or my career may be. Which is your greater ambition, honestly? Ask yourself this, to be prominent or just to be wise? If you had to choose one over the other, which would it be? And if we're brutally honest with ourselves, there is something within all of our hearts that wants the prominence, isn't there? I want to be seen as important. I want to be seen as the top dog, the number one in, in whatever I do. I want prominence in my particular field, in my career, in my walk of life. And of course, it applies to those in ministry just as well, doesn't it? It is a searching question to ask yourself, what do I want people to say about me at my funeral? And deep down, do I want people to say, this person lived a very prominent life. They were well known. Look how many people are here. They had a big influence in what they did in life. Or would I rather people say, this person had a very low-key, unimpressive life, really. There's no one who's ever heard of them, really. There'll be no obituary in the newspaper for this person. But despite their obscurity in life, they displayed real godly wisdom in how they live. Which eulogy do you want, prominence or wisdom? And the teacher, you see, is saying to us, whatever our career, whatever our walk of life, value wisdom above prominence. And turn aside from that fallen, sinful, proud ambition for prominence and seek God's wisdom first and foremost in whatever you do. There's a modern hymn that sums it up so well. Take all my cravings for vain recognition, fleshly indulgence, and worldly ambition. I want so much, Lord, to make you the focus, to serve you in secret and never be noticed. This is quite an exploration of the theme of ambition, isn't it? And the teacher has shown us so well that fallen ambition is skewed by sin and it causes suffering in the world and it ends in futility. And he's shown us these four examples of the ambition for power, possessions, prosperity and prominence. And I wonder, is there one of those fallen ambitions that really strikes a chord with you? And you know that in your own heart, the ambition for power or possessions or prosperity or prominence, that is what holds particular sway. Well, the teacher has shown us, hasn't he, how to repent of these fallen ambitions and how to pursue godly ambitions instead 
And yet before we close, there is something else here that we shouldn't miss. Maybe you've noticed it already. And yet throughout this passage, the teacher has been doing something else, hasn't he? He's also, do you notice, been painting for us a little portrait of Jesus. Did you notice that? Jesus is, of course, the man of perfect godly ambitions. And because he is the man of perfect ambitions, he is everything that this chapter longs for. Everything that this chapter points towards and anticipates. So take, for example, the fallen ambition for power, which causes us to oppress those who are weaker than ourselves. And yet we see in Jesus Christ that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He came not to be served, but to serve, even to give his life as a ransom for many. Rather than oppressing the weak, he came to show compassion towards them. A bruised reed he would not break, a smoldering wick he would not quench. And then take the fallen ambition for both possessions and prosperity. And of course, Jesus lived a life of poverty. And as Paul tells us, he was rich, and yet for our sakes, he became poor. So that we, by his poverty, could become rich in him. And then take the fallen ambition for prominence. And remember that story of the old king that the teacher told us in verses 13 to 16. And I wonder, in verse 14, is there just a a little subtle nod by the Holy Spirit in the direction of another king, who is Jesus? Just look at verse 14. Taken on its own, that verse could refer to the career of Jesus, couldn't it? Jesus, who in his own kingdom was born poor, And who lived a life of poverty. And his life was hardly a bed of roses, was it? He grew up in poverty as an adult. He was then numbered with the transgressors. He was imprisoned like a criminal. He was put to death by two robbers, uh, next to two robbers. And then he was laid in a tomb, the ultimate prison. And yet that wasn't the end of the story for him, was it? Uh, He rose from the dead. And he ascended to heaven. Or in the language of Ecclesiastes 4, he went from the prison to the throne. And on the throne, he is everything that the old king that is talked about here in Ecclesiastes 4, he's everything that that king wasn't. And so rather than being the foolish king, he is the one in whom are found all the treasures of wisdom. Rather than being proud, he is meek. He's lowly in heart and he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. Rather than his reign being temporary to be usurped by another, he is king forevermore. There's no replacement for him. And no one rejoiced in that other king, did they? But a multitude that no one can number will rejoice in King Jesus. And you see, Jesus is everything that this chapter longs for, everything that it points towards, everything that it anticipates, because he is the man of perfect godly ambitions. 
And it is the work of the Holy Spirit to make us like him. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to rid us of our sinful ambitions for power and possessions and prosperity and prominence and to give us godly, Christ-like ambitions instead to make us like Jesus. The Apostle Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. And our Heavenly Father, we confess to you that we are fallen people whose hearts are filled with these fallen, sinful ambitions. And we pray that by your Spirit, you would change us to be more like Jesus Christ. We ask that you would take away our sinful ambition for power. And that you would give us a desire to serve and to care for those who are weak. We pray that you would take away our sinful ambition for possessions which so often is just driven out of envy of others. And instead that you would fill us with godly, quiet contentment instead. We pray that you would take away our sinful ambition for prosperity and help us to live in fellowship with one another, sharing with one another. And we pray that you would take away our sinful ambition for prominence and help us to pursue wisdom instead. Fill us with these godly ambitions, we pray. Make us more like our King Jesus, who is wise and humble, who is King forevermore, and in whom we rejoice. And in his name, we ask these things. Amen.